Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 23 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and like to use one, there's a, a, a Bible in the pew back that's right in front of you. You can grab that. Turn over to page 892. Romans 14, um, verse 13, or page 892 in the pew Bible. Uh, we are nearing the end of our study of this amazing letter, the uh, letter to the church at Rome. After this morning, we'll only have two chapters left. That's chapters 15 and 16. Um, I wanted to make sure that before, I wanted to make sure that we finish our study of the book of Romans before I leave for my uh, summer sabbatical. After eight and a half years of ministry here, the elders have been gracious to give me a two-month sabbatical leave this coming summer. So I will be gone from the pulpit June and July. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be a time of just relaxation with my family. Thank you guys. Um, getting some rest. Uh, pastoring you guys is <laughs> quite the task. So... Uh, <laughs> It's a joy, but it'd be nice to get away from some, some time. My family and I will be in Japan. It turns out that some families in our church will be in Japan at the same time, so we're actually going to get together, and that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and just there's a stack of books I've been wanting to read, and so I will have an opportunity to just read and dive into topics that I've been longing to do. Uh, but don't worry, you guys are going to be well taken care of. Through the summer, we have a series called uh, Making, Making Much of Jesus, and every week we'll be looking at how do we make much of Jesus in things like our vocation, our dating life, retirement, um, our leisure, our hobbies, our exercise, all those things. How do we maximize the name of Christ in those areas of life that are part of our lives, but we don't think about how we can make the most of Jesus there. So it's going to be great. We have elders from our church will be in the pulpit. I think we have some professors from Talbot that will be here, local area pastors from Costa Mesa. You guys are going to be blessed. It's going to be a great series. But this morning, you know, we are going to end a what's been really a seven-part mini-series within the book of Romans that started in chapter 12 and runs all the way through this morning in chapter 14. It's been entitled, Our Response to God's Glory, or to pull it, put it in the words of Paul in Romans 12, to be living sacrifices by the mercies of God. Um, we think about what, what are those, what is God's glory, what have been those mercies, and that's been everything we've studied in this book from chapter 1 all the way through up chapter 11. God's glory, his mercy, as seen in the gospel, requires a response. And since February 26, we have been looking at our response through the lens of new relationships that the gospel brings us. Number one, our new relationship that we have with God, uh, the new relationship we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with one another, one another, the relationship we have with the state, and all those relationships in light of that great day when God brings all things to fulfillment in Christ. That's what we've been looking at. Now, before Paul finishes up the final topics in the book of Romans, which is basically uh, the church's unity, the church's mission, the church's endurance, he, he wants to address a, a very important thing, and that, that is the question, how do we live together with so many differences? How do we live together in our differences. So last week, we began, I guess, a, a mini, mini series in this mini series, and it was entitled, Our Relationships Between the Weak and the Strong, right? Now, last week was part one, so this week is part two, which is why you have a very obnoxiously long title in your sermon bulletin this morning, uh, Our Response to God's Glory, Part Seven, The Relationship Between the Weak and the Strong, Part Two, right? So nothing like a Puritan sermon title to discourage you from coming to church. So. Um, that's what we're looking at. And, and the driving question 
that surely must, hu- must have hung over the church of Rome was how do we live together in our differences? How do we live together in our differences? And as you can imagine, that's very applicable to us. But the reason I think that's, to us, it makes a lot of sense, but to them it might have been an unusual challenge is because the church, up to that time, society had never seen anything like the church. The society had not seen a community of individuals, of of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, freed, slave, men and women, Roman, barbarian, all coming together made one in Christ. They had never seen anything like that. It had broken down all the barriers at the time. And so naturally with all those differences came all the diversity. Friends, just on that note, the church has always been and will and should always continue to be two things. One, a counterculture. The church ought to be a counterculture with a completely new ethic, a completely new value system. In fact, a whole new humanity because of what Christ has done. The church needs to be a place where the world looks at it and says, I don't get those people. They are completely, they think differently like than the rest of us. We shouldn't live like the world. We should stand out. We should be a, a counterculture in our pursuit of holiness, in our hatred for sin, in our own lives as well as in the world around us. But, but we need to be a counterculture to that. Secondly, though, the church has to be related to that is a, a picture of God's eschatological plan. Now, that word eschatology shouldn't sound scaring, especially if you were here in our series in Revelation. It just means the end times, the end things. The church ought to be God's picture, his eschatological picture of what it's supposed to be. That you have people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue communing together that may have nothing in common except Jesus Christ, and that's enough to bring all these differences together in one. If you're a little hot tip, if you're looking for a church, please do not find a church where everyone's like you, right? That's a big thing in church growth today. It's called homogeneity. Let's make it all the same. So you have your hipster church, you have your young church, you have your old church, you have your contemporary church, the the, the traditional church, the Republican church, the, the Democrat church. That is not the church. God's vision is that in a world that's so fractured and separated and segregated that there would be a counterculture community that says you can be totally different on all these external things. But when you all recognize that you are a great sinner but you have a greater savior, that reality binds you more than the differences separate you. And so when you're looking for a church, look for a church that they may not all be the same except they all recognize that the, the ground before the cross is equal ground for everyone, and that's enough to bind them together. That's what the church has always been historically. That's what the church has to be. And while, as you'll see in a little bit as we read the text, while the issues in first century Rome were completely different than the issues in 21st century Laguna Hills, you will see that the, the, the pain points and the solutions are very, very similar once you get below the surface. So what I want to do is I want to read the text, explain a little bit of the context for you, and then address the question, how do we live together in our differences? Make sense? Well, would you stand with me as we read God's word from Romans 14? I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I said last week, Paul began to address the question, how do we live together in our differences? And last week we had Pastor Peter from Grace, uh, uh, Grace Church in Kentucky gave us four reasons by way of laying a foundation for what we're looking at to this, this morning. If you weren't here last week, the four reasons was because God welcomes us all, God strengthens us all, God is sovereign of us all, and God is judge of us all. And, and then he tucked in kind of a fifth one, a bonus one, is because you are family. And because of these things, what the church needs to do to live together in its differences is to decide to love one another, verses 13 to 15. We need to remember that we are citizens of another kingdom, and then finally maintain the primacy of faith and the priority of balance, verses 20 to 23. So to help you see how chapter 14 works together as a cohesive whole, think of it this way. In verses 1 through 12, Paul was offering or or giving a plea for tolerance. Don't pass judgment on each other. Enough with that. And in verses 13 to 23, now he's giving a principle that they can live by, and that is do not stumble each other because of your differences. So in the first 12 verses, don't pass judgment because of your differences. And in the second half, Here's a principle, don't stumble each other because of your differences. So how do we live together in our differences? Well, this is how you do it. You make a decision, you remember something really important, and you maintain faith and balance. Now, as you might have picked up in the reading of, the, of, of our text this morning, the Roman Christians were struggling over food differences, And I know for you and I, that that is something that's really hard to relate to. We don't ever struggle over decisions about food. Probably the biggest struggle you have is where you're going to eat after second service. That's probably the biggest struggle we have over food differences. Nobody in this church has a theological issue over food, right? Now, I have a theological bone to pick with the fake meat stuff that's coming out, right? The Impossible Burger. I I think that is a problem that soon is on the horizon. Um, Jesus says, none of us will know the day or hour, but watch out for the signs. That's clearly a sign of the apocalypse, (laughs) that you're making steak out of cauliflower. I mean, just as a side note, like if you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you want to eat plants, eat plants. But don't tell me that this plant can taste like meat, right? Sorry, just my wife knows this strikes close to my heart. So 
while food issues are not an issue yet, they might be soon. But the point is, amongst the Roman Christians, food issues were of a great concern. And let me explain why. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, we learn that in those pagan societies, and, and by and large, every society at that time were basically pagan. There was no Christian worldview. So in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, we, re we realize that oftentimes the food sold at market, before it got to market, was sacrificed and dedicated to the other gods and deities of that, that culture, whether Greek or Roman. And so many of the Christian uh, Jews and Gentiles that were part of the Church of Rome struggled with eating that kind of meat because in some way that was a tacit response or so support or patronization of that deity, okay? And so the context we're dealing with is when the church gathers, they often gather to have communal meals, and they were concerned that this meat had already been sacrificed to idols, and so they had a problem with that. Others within the church at Rome other Jewish Christians in particular were still abiding by the, the dietary kosher laws of Leviticus 11. Still others in the church at Rome felt that eating meat and drinking wine was something that they should abstain from or fast from these things as a sign of grief over the Jewish rejection of the Messiah that Paul just talked about in Romans chapter 9 through 11. So as a result, when, when this meat was being eaten in the Roman common meal... Some people perceive that as this is straight-up compromise with the world. Others saw this as an apathy toward the commands of God, a lack of commitment. Still others felt that this was a lack of love or sensitivity toward the lost because they should be fasting these things. And still others in the Church of Rome recognized that this is just food, right? Food that we should be received with thanksgiving as part of God's good creation. And, for example, they had good biblical precedent to think that. So Matthew chapter 15, Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, look, it's not what you put inside of you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. And so they understood that this is just food. And if you look at the argument in 1 Corinthians, there were no other deities out there. There's no gods behind those idols. So it's just food is what it is. So these people had good biblical arguments. But then again, so did those who could go to Leviticus 11 and said, you shouldn't be eating this because the Bible teaches against this. And then again... So did those who had good socio, sociological arguments that the, the world around us thinks that there are gods out there and we're supporting that. Or others had kind of a missional argument. This is a love issue. We, we should be fasting these foods to, for the sake of our, our brothers that have not come to Christ. My point is, you can maybe see now that this was kind of a messy issue in that church. Maybe we don't have these theological battles over the kind of food we eat, but you can now appreciate why it caused such a ruckus in the Roman church. And so verses 1 through 12, Paul makes the case, look, don't judge each other on this, rather receive one another. And then in these 10 verses we're looking at this morning, Paul gets radically countercultural. He gets radically countercultural because in essence, his argument is this, hey, listen, restrain your freedoms. Don't exercise and don't claim your rights. It's about serving one another and caring for each other as God in Christ has done for us. Friends, I can't think of a more like cultural, countercultural 21st, 21st century message than restrain your freedoms. Don't claim your rights. Can you? If anything, we look around our society and that's what everyone's doing. 
claiming the freedoms, claiming their freedoms, and demanding their rights. And Paul says, no, that's not to be the case with you. Can we actually do this? Because that's what Paul is hoping we would actually consider. That life is not consistent enjoying your personal freedoms and exercising your rights, true as those might be, but to not claim your freedoms and not exercise your rights. How do we do this? And Paul gives us three simple steps. The first way we do that is, number one, to decide to love one another, verses 13 to 15. Instead of spending their time judging one another, you do things differently and you're wrong for doing it this way. Notice Paul says, decide never to place either a stumbling block or an obstacle in someone's way. Now, I want to be very clear. Though the issue at hand, the lightning rod, is this matter of food, but you can clearly see how the issue, the principles transcend food issues. And Paul was saying, make a decision not to stumble one another or place an obstacle in someone's way. And the word that he uses in, in the Greek, krino, judgment, it, it means to make a judgment call, to, to make an account of something. And in the Greek text, it's an imperative verb, which means it's a command. Paul is commanding them, saying, you have to make the volitional choice to live differently than the world. Learning to live in community will not come automatically to any one of them, and it won't come automatically to any one of us. It just doesn't work that way. If we're going to learn to live in community, to be this counterculture, Paul says we need to make a decision not to put a stumbling block, not to put a hindrance in anyone's way. In fact, so much of the Christian life, my friends, is careful decision-making. The choice to do one thing and not another. Because the reality is our default settings, our default settings of the flesh is to pass judgment on each other because we do things differently. To speak ill of one another, to grumble, to complain about others, to focus on ourselves, our freedoms, our rights, our preferences, the way we do things. And Paul is saying, no. If you're going to have this countercultural community, you cannot operate on those default settings. You need to decide to be different. Don't operate on the default setting because that's only about you. Decide to be different. Friends, that's one of the reasons if you become a member at this church, we have you actually sign a church covenant. We have you sign a document that says, I will decide to live differently than my default settings. Decide to stop judging, Paul says. But more than that, decide that you will not unintentionally trip someone up. That's what he means by stumbling block. Or intentionally cause someone to trip up in their walk with God. That's what he means by hindrance. I like the NIV. If you're reading the NIV, they translated that word as an obstacle. So don't unintentionally leave a stumbling block someplace where someone can trip over it. And don't intentionally put an obstacle in someone's way. Keep in mind, Romans 14 is found in the broader context of this, this love imperative we find in Romans 13 and Romans 12. Remember in Romans 12, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let me just pause there. And, and, and don't you, do you notice this is a constant theme in Scripture? Don't do this. Rather do this. We even saw in our text. 
Don't judge one another. Rather, decide to do this. We see it right here in Romans 12. Don't do this, or excuse me, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Don't do the negative, do the positive. Let love be genuine. Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who love, loves another has fulfilled the law. To do this, friends, we have to, each and every one of us, exercise what's called self-agency. The choice to live in a certain way. Self-agency. To actually decide how I'm going to live. Friends, holiness is not automatic. Right? We know this. As we got into this section in Romans 12, all this amazing truth from Romans 1 through 11, all this, I mean, he could have concluded the book at chapter 8, this high point that nothing separates us from the love of God and, and, and all of this. But then yet, he goes into these four chapters of imperative, command after command. This is what holiness, this is what love looks like because holiness is not automatic. Christ-like transformation does not happen by osmosis. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how many sermons you sleep through, you will not be like Jesus, right? You actually have to make a decision. This is how I'm going to live. And, and, and James tells us it's not even about hearing the word of God. So even though you might be here Sunday after Sunday hearing the word of God preached, unless you decide and do as James says, to be a doer of the word, there will be no transformation. Showing up and passively receiving does not change you. But it's an active, act of self-agency to decide, this is how I will be different. Decide not to live by my default setting. Decide to live differently. And friends, so much of the Christian life is this careful decision-making. I love the fact that Paul commands them to make this decision, this act of self-agency, rather than commanding them to straight-up obedience. Notice that Paul does not just command obedience. He commands them to think about this. And the reason why, I think, is this. Especially in matters of, 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 of where Scripture gives freedom to live differently, it's not about just being right in your argument. You could be right in your argument. You could be right in exercising your freedoms, but you could still be wrong in the application of it. So Paul's not just commanding straight-up obedience because it's not just a matter of living this way. He says you can be totally right in the argument. You can be totally right in your freedoms. You can be totally right in your preferences, but absolutely wrong in the way you've applied it, which is, I think, the point of what he's getting at here in verses 14 and 15. So, so let's read that, verse 14, 15. I know, he says, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. And so we know he's probably thinking about those people who think about Leviticus 11 because Leviticus 11, the kosher laws, is all about what's clean and what's unclean. And he says, look, I'm persuaded by Jesus himself. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So what Paul is saying is, look, you need to make wise, careful decisions in these areas of life where Scripture allows some freedom. Right? Friends, I wish, actually, no, I don't wish because I'm not a rule follower per se, but it would be easier if all of life was chapter and verse, right? Like, 
Oh, should I watch the latest John Wick movie? Well, according to Opinions Chapter 2, no, John Wick movies are off. off you know, I wish it, that, that would make life easier. But then our Bibles would be massive, right? A lot of life is not chapter and verse. I know some of you really wish it were, right? You're the, the legalist type. I'll get to you in a little bit. You wish there was chapter and verse for everything. But a lot of life is not that way. It is rather the wise application of biblical principles. And so with a lot of that, there's going to be a wide range of freedoms that we have to make that decision. Now, the majority of the church at Rome, they had no problem because, remember, most of them were Gentiles. And by and large, they weren't concerned about the scruples of the kosher law. Uh, they may not even been following these deities. And so the majority of the Roman church had no problem with eating meat or drinking wine. And so when they gathered for their communal meals, which happened quite a lot, right? Kind of imagine church potlucks, but every time they gathered, they, they would have this meat and this wine. And because the weaker brother and sister was of the minority opinion, there were no other options. And so when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would basically be coerced or compelled to eat this wheat, uh, meat and drink this wine in violation of their own conscience. And they didn't believe this was right, but there was no other option. And so that's what Paul is getting at. They were basically grieving their brother and sister by compelling them to eat of this meat and drink of this wine. And they were destroying the one for whom Christ died because they were compromising their strongly held convictions. In, in the verse 15, that word there, um, for if your brother is grieved. Now, so we need to be clear on this. This is not the kind of thing where people might say, oh, I'm so grieved that this church doesn't sing enough hymns. And so because I'm grieved, you have to change. That, that's not what it's getting at here. It's not saying, oh, I'm grieved that your pastor wears jeans. And so you need to accommodate me and not wear jeans, wear slacks now. That's not what's, getting, what's being gotten at here. The word for grief here in the original text, lupeo, speaks of a grief over a lost, the life of a, lost, a loved one being lost. It is a profound grief that's being experienced because they were being coerced to violate their conscience and drink this wine and eat this meat. And that's what Paul was saying. You're destroying the one for whom Christ loves. You're causing them to violate their conscience. And you're wrecking them. So let me give you a for instance, a modern day for instance, that, that may be closer to home. Let's say you have some friends who enjoy the, the freedom of drinking alcohol. And they enjoy that freedom. And they pressure another brother or sister who doesn't share that liberty into drinking with them because they want that brother or sister to be mature and to be a grown-up Christian and enjoy a good beer for crying out loud. Right? Now, to be clear... It's not a sin to enjoy alcohol. If you want to enjoy a beer, feel free. If you like whiskey that tastes like spicy cow urine, fine, right? <laughs> Drink it to your heart's content, right? But, but don't pressure, and no, I haven't drunk cow urine, I don't know, but that's what I'd imagine it would probably taste like. But to pressure someone who doesn't share that liberty is to place a, a stumbling block before them. And now that dear brother or sister may compromise in other areas of their faith that could lead them to true spiritual compromise and danger. Because the reasoning goes like this. Well, look, if I can violate my conscience, if I've, I've, been, if I've been forced to violate my conscience in this area, I can violate my conscience in this area as well. And it could lead to some serious problems in their life. As an example, friends, 
Now, to be clear, right, most Christians would not intentionally force another believer to, to drink wine or beer or violate their conscience. That's, that's the reality. Most Christians would not do something like that intentionally. But what about unintentionally? I have counseled a bro- more than one brother or sister who slipped back into the bondage of alcohol, not because non-Christian friends forced them to go at a beer after work, but because they were surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who had no idea of their struggle and did not think that their freedoms could lead someone to stumble. And one social drink led them back into the bondage of alcohol. They have sat across my desk in tears because where else were they going to go? This was their new community. This was their fellowship. And those dear brothers had no idea and led them back into bondage. Maybe it's not out alcohol. Okay, let's take, remove that. Let's talk about may, maybe it's your peer group about how you decide to educate your kids. Public school, home school, charter school, private school. Maybe it's what political candidate you think a Christian can vote for and can't vote for. Maybe it's the kind of firm, a form of birth control you think is acceptable. Whether or not you think you should be wearing a mask, on and on. The list could go on and on. You get what I'm getting at. The question is, are you creating an environment where a brother or sister cannot live out, can't live out their convictions because the majority group does not even stop to consider their point of view? You're just assuming that everyone's like you and has those freedoms without even realizing it. And the only way to be different, Paul says, is to decide to live with intentionality and a concern for those around you, right? Verse 16 is key for this. Look at verse 16. Paul says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as as evil. That can be confusing. What Paul is saying is, look, the gospel that has helped you see so clearly, the gospel that has transformed you so thoroughly, this good in your life, don't let it be spoken of as evil because now the freedoms you have are causing others to stumble. Don't let this genuine good that you experience now be called evil because those freedoms are causing others to stumble in their walk. And in typical pastoral wisdom, Paul lifts this whole conversation to another level and helps us see the issues for what they really are. So let me summarize this before we move on. The first key in in learning to live together in our differences is to decide to love others more than your freedoms more than your rights, more than the way you would do things and your preferences and desires. That's critical. The first key to living together in our differences is to make that decision to love others more than your freedoms and your rights. The second key, which really is kind of the the, the way you can do the first, it's kind of the ground of the first, is to remember, verse 17 and 18, we are citizens of another kingdom. When Paul says this, he's basically reminding us, let me read to you verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. When Paul says this, he's basically reminding us that the Christian life is not a matter of enjoying your freedoms. It's not a matter about exerting your rights. It's a matter of the things of the kingdom of God. And he says what they are, righteousness, peace, joy. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not about the things we get to do now in Christ because we're free. Woohoo! Party! No, he's saying it's about the kingdom of God. Righteousness and peace and joy. Now, righteousness, yeah, we might think theologically because you're a pretty smart congregation. So you're thinking about Romans chapter 5 through 8. The righteousness of Christ that we have, we're justified before God. Woo, that's great. But Paul is also talking about just what's the word mean? 
living with rightness, having virtue, being right in the world, living acts of righteousness. So what he's talking about, it's not about your freedoms, but really how is God's kingdom being expanded in the world through you? How is the darkness of this world being pushed back because you live rightly in it? That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's also about peace. And yes, he's talking theologically that the hostility between God and man has been ended in Christ. But he's also talking about the word, uh, the Hebrew idea of shalom. Goodness, satisfaction, well-being, and contentedness. How is your life bringing shalom to those around you? How, is, how are you bringing shalom to the world? And then he says joy, which is the natural result of the former two. Paul's point is life is so much more than eating and drinking our freedoms. Instead, how we order our lives, how we order our lives should be around more around bringing more of the kingdom of God into this world and the lives around us, not simply about our freedoms and our rights and our preferences. Regarding verse 17, one pastor said this, the kingdom of God is about eternal things, not external things. And the precise problem with the conversation between the weak and the strong is the conversation is always a focus on external things rather than on the eternal things of God. The weak... They just live in a kingdom that are bound by the rules. The strong, they just live in a kingdom that are freed from the rules, right? So the weak can be tempted to be the legalist. Finding their salvation by following the rules. They know how good they are because the rules they follow tell them they are good. The strong can be tempted to be the antinomian. Remember I talked about them. The antinomian is a person that doesn't care about the rules. It means to have no rules. They find their salvation by throwing off the rules. They know how good they are because the rules don't apply to them. But the problem is both the weak and the strong, the focus is still, guess what? The rules. So they're not much different after all. Our behavior, what you do, what you don't do, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you drink, what you don't drink, who you vote for, who you don't vote for, on and on and on. They're looking at the same issue. They're just on different sides of the issue, but they're very much the same. It's about the rules, which is why with that thinking, Jesus is always a conundrum to people in his time and today. Because Jesus, he hung out with the prostitutes and he hung out with the priests. He hung out with the tax collectors and the zealots. He hung out with the soldiers and the scribes. And you couldn't get people with more differing points of view than those groups. And you can bet every one of them was asking him, why do you hang out with the others? Because the citizens of this world are focused on the things of this world, their freedoms, their rights, and the rules. But the citizens of another kingdom focus on grace. Now, to be clear, grace includes our freedoms and our rights. But grace always goes way beyond those. Which is, I think, why we have this transitional verse in verse 19. So, and by the way, so the person who lives this way, understanding what, what life's about, it's not about our freedoms and our rights. Verse 18, he's saying, whoever lives, serves Christ this way, they're great. They're acceptable by God and approved by man. So what should we do? Pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. 
So let's summarize. How do we live together in our differences? Number one, every one of us needs to decide to love others more than we love our freedoms and our rights. The second thing, the way we do that is remember, we're citizens of a different kingdom. Our focus is not those things, but spreading the rightness of God's rule for all to experience, whether or not they're Christians, right? Bringing that shalom to all, well-being, satisfaction, and contentedness, and the joy that corresponds with that. And the third and final thing we need to do is maintain the primacy of faith and the priority of balance. Martin Luther, the famed reformer, in his book, Freedom of a Christian Man, he had it correct. He says this, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to no one. A Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. Uh, I wonder if Luther's riffing off of Romans 13, 8. Remember we talked about that. Owe no one anything except the debt to love. Friends, when you think about kind of the, the, the way the Christian life works, experiencing the freedoms we have in Christ, Christian liberty is like kind of walking on a tightrope. And when you are walking on that rope, right, and, and, and you've got the balancing pole in hand, on the one side of the pole you have personal freedoms. But on the other side of that pole, you need to have love for others. And when those two are balanced, you are walking as you ought to be. But whenever any one of them goes off, if you're an antinomian, it's all about personal freedoms, you're going to fall. Or if you're the legalist, it's all about, well, that actually doesn't work in that one, loving others. It, it, you know, you get the point, right? I know, I should never do illustrations off the top of my head. But the point is, <laughs> balance. And, and that you see all through verses 20 and 23. Look at it. So verse 20, Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Yet then he immediately clarifies in the second half of verse 20, everything indeed is clean. So you're free to eat and drink and live however God gives you the faith to do so. But then in verse 21, he says, it's good not to eat or drink or do anything that causes someone to stumble or compromise their convictions. But then quickly in verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. So there's this back and forth balance. Friends, in matters of indifference, I'm going to have to land it soon. In matters of indifference, where what I mean by that, there's no clear chapter and verse. There's no explicit scripture telling us how we ought to live. Those areas we might call disputable, where we can have genuine freedom in Christ. And, and here we need to be careful. Because some people... Um, so, so like the legalists, they want to say there are very few disputable areas. We all have to live a certain way, and I know how, right? That's the legalist. The antinomian says oh, there's way too many things. They put too many things in that category. We can live however we like, right? So you have to be careful that, that, that to say there's too many of them or too little of them. And again, like in our church covenant, the way we came up with that covenant is we look back historically through the ages, church covenants in the past, and I think you're actually going to be kind of surprised how even though it's a covenant of how we will live our lives, how we've decided to live, it's pretty broad. We don't say get down to the specifics because we recognize there's so many disputable areas, but yet there's a core of how we decide to live together. But there's a lot of freedom. The point is, once you agree on what those disputable areas are, we all need to do the same thing. Number one, we need to look at the biblical evidence. 
We need to go to Scripture. What does the Word of God teach on this? And once we've done that, we need to rethink our position. One of the reasons I'm so glad that we have a diversity in this church. Last week, I was talking to a Democrat after service. <gasps> You're like, I thought you were Christians. You have Democrats here? Yes. We have all kinds of sinners at this church, right? <laughs> We have Republican sinners, and my, my point is, one of the things I'm so grateful is, we had a one-hour conversation after Pastor Peter taught us, so it was a perfect time to talk about things we disagreed on, and we had a great one-hour edifying conversation where we were very different in, in our application of certain truths, but we were spot on on the truth itself. Help you rethink positions. To, to, to be balance each other out, right? Because if I'm going to be honest, I don't want to live in any world that's either to the left or to the right. They're all nuts, okay? Whether they're right or left, because the gospel confronts them and or affirms them and challenges. Wait, affirms and challenges all those points of view, right? Why do I feel like my job's in jeopardy right now? I'm going to move on. <laughs> Review the biblical evidence. Rethink your position. And then very importantly, very importantly, either not pass judgment on those who disagree or not live irresponsibly in front of others that you might cause them to stumble. Where we find areas of freedom, that's what we need to do because that's what the scriptures are telling us. And that makes us a counterculture to the world because they don't know how that functions because in the world, and you're seeing it, you all got to agree or you all got to disagree on every issue. And if not, you're a heretic or you're not a patriot or you're not, whatever. The world needs to see a community where we actually have a lot of differences, but we can live together because we know what matters. And those differences make us stronger. And Paul concludes, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That is to say, if your freedom is fueled simply by a selfish desire to enjoy yourself and exert your rights, you miss the very heart of God. If your obedience is a form of earning your merit with God, to have something uh, to show him your worth, you're missing the very salvation of God. Because faith embraces and recognizes the grace of God that gives us this freedom and the love of God that calls us to steward our freedom for the edification of others. Let me just conclude with, with a wonderful passage of scripture that, that, that we will launch into this next week as Paul gets to that as well. And with this, I can ask the, the praise team, the music team to come up. It's a reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Paul says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that you would make that truth real for us. Forgive us for our factitious nature. 
for exalting our freedoms and rights and our preferences and the way we do things and forgetting that you've called us to decide to love one another. There's enough of that fighting in the world. The world needs to see a community that is radically different because they don't know how that can be possible, that we're radically different, yet we love one another because we all stand as as one at the foot of the cross. Father, help us to repent intelligently and joyfully embrace your truth that we might promote righteousness of the kingdom, the peace that it brings, and the joy that is the result. Not our freedoms, not our rights. Christ, you modeled for us. You could have claimed your freedoms. You could have claimed your rights, but you did none of these things. You laid them down. And as Paul says, even death on a cross. Father, help us to be like our elder brother. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.